Hello, this is Andrew, and this is where you get that sinking feeling, because the podcast episode you're about to listen to requires a disclaimer. Uh, in this case, the disclaimer is, it doesn't sound very good. We had a series of technical difficulties that all kind of compounded together and resulted in some kind of noisy, not great sounding recordings. Uh, I want to assure you that this is a one-time problem, uh, that all of our other episodes sound better than this one. But uh, I still wanted to put this out because I do think it's listenable. I did some work to rescue it as best I could. We have some great conversations here, and we hear from a couple listeners. So uh, hopefully you can see fit to forgive us for this um, not great sounding episode, knowing that there are better sounding episodes in both the past and future of this podcast. All right. Uh, without further ado, here we go. Uh, hey, my name is John. Uh, I just wanted to let you guys know I'm a big fan of the podcast. Uh, I've been listening for uh, uh, maybe two months or so now. And um, yeah, I, I finished Infinite Jest over the summer and immediately looked for some of these, uh, you know, like a, a read-through podcast. And, uh, you know, there's some okay ones out there, but you guys definitely have the best one. Uh, I feel like you guys really go in in-depth with uh, the themes and the characters. And, uh, you know, you have a great chemistry. And uh, I feel like you guys seem very well read and, uh, you know, you know a lot about film and uh, all sorts of different things. So it always, you know, keeps it real interesting to listen to. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just want to let you guys know that you guys are doing a good job and a uh, big fan. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Oh, my God. Someone's yeah. listening to us. And they, they yeah. sound like, like we're smart. That's it's, even more shocking. It's baffling. That is baffling. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought that was delightful. That was I got that uh, uh, since our last recording, so I've wow. been holding on to it to yeah keep that to one. Boy, our spirits! Yeah, thank you, yes. John, for that. That yeah, was very you, kind John. of you. Uh, That's lovely to know that somebody's so listening. nice to hear. Yeah, that anyone that anyone is listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because really, I mean, really, we're mostly doing it for ourselves because it's yeah. so interesting yeah. and fun to talk about. But it makes it. Mm -hmm. It makes it, oh, it puts a little different twist on it to know that somebody's out there listening to us. Yeah, yeah, it's just delightful. Figure out what's going on in this book. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is yeah. delightful. Thank yeah, you. so if, if you are a silent listener and would like your voice heard on the podcast, uh, check the link in our show notes for a way to uh, leave us voice messages on Anchor. All right, enough throat clearing. <clears throat> what funny <clears throat> stuff. <clears throat> <laughs> I think I think it might be time to actually get started here. Okay. Oh. oh. Okay. All right. <laughs> some of us, some of us who dutifully read this weeks ago, will probably forget <laughs> what we read, and those of us who are last-minute readers who just you just finished reading today, like like two minutes before we logged into Discord. It will mm -hmm. be more. Uh, are you kidding? I'm still reading now. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Welcome to Good Looking People in Small Clever Rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Greetings! 
And as always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hello. And by our friend, Vinny. Hi. I missed an opportunity to say aloha. That's a little uh, Andy Iona for us. It's the only public domain Polynesian music I could find on the internet in my hurried Google searches this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> so we get like a couple longish chunks here, like... It kind of breaks down into three. I think so. Yes. We start out with... With Lentz and Green, right? Yeah, yeah, and Green Green is kind of wandering. He realizes that... Well, so he hears some Polynesian music and goes into right. this reverie about his past and then realizes that he he has ditched Lens or Lens has ditched him right. or something. Mm-hmm. And Lens can be... He is such a strange, broken individual. He also says that Joelle wears a veil because she's only got one eye that's right in the middle of her forehead from oh, birth right. like a seahorse. Uh, which, by the way, right. I looked it up just to make sure. <laughs> Seahorses definitely have two eyes. Um, which isn't that surprising because they, re- they resemble horses, Truly. which also have two eyes. Wait, they do? <laughs> <laughs> if I know one thing about horses, it's that they have two eyes. Listen, I've seen a lot of horses... I've never seen a horse with a giant cyclops eye in the middle of its forehead. Yeah. Yeah. Name the first horse fact that pops into your head when you think of horses. They've got two eyes. There. Two eyes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's right. 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 Also, yeah, so also their, I, their legs are giant fingers. Is that true? Is that a thing that I learned? I think so, because I've definitely seen an illustration of a horse that is just a giant illustrated hand. Or am I imagining that? I don't, Is that a nightmare? I, I, <laughs> I don't mean to be spreading horse misinformation, but I, I feel like I've heard that, that, that skeletally, horse legs are more similar to fingers than to Leg other animals' legs. Finger? Oh, wow. That's bizarre. Yeah. I don't the believe limbs that. of a horse, the ideal horse is like, uh... You can say that, but I don't believe it. So. <laughs> oh, so you oh, know. oh, I have images. There are images Uh-oh. on the Oh, no. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, I will say, I've never really looked at pictures of seahorses before. Uh, hmm. It's it's kind of amazing how horse-like their faces They're are. They're very horse-like. They are. It's true. So Lens is spreading misinformation. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Either either on purpose or just because. I think, I, I have to assume that, yeah, pretty much everything he says is false. Oh, he either because he's lying somebody. on purpose or... Hmm. He reminds me of someone in, in yeah. the news currently. Hmm. What? Yeah. yeah. That everything, huh. like, requires a fact check. <laughs> everything he says. Even seahorses have one eye, and so does Joel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty weird. The, uh, his, his story about his mother's death was fairly uh, horrible. Harrowing. Yeah. Harrowing, a harrowing tale of of his mother. Yeah. Who once again is somebody who, you know, she's has a disability. She's horribly overweight. So here again, mm-hmm. we see that, uh, and that and that basically led to her death, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so or kind of kind indirectly, of, she has this. She gets this injury because she's and overweight, then she get, and then oh, she right. gets a and then she a gets settlement a huge check. Settlement. This reminded me of the entertainment that, like, once she gets this this need or this want 
fulfilled, then she doesn't want to do anything other than sit in her right. chair and be right. be appeased. Right, that very much like the entertainment. Mm-hmm. It also, I, I had trouble with this because it also strikes me very much as like the social conservative argument against welfare. That like, yeah, uh, uh-huh. poor people yeah. are inherently lazy, and if we give them enough right. money to live, then they and won't ever just leave be their houses. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but that really mm-hmm. is. It's true. I did have to smile at somewhere. I think in that story, he references the the 18th Circus Civil Court <laughs> instead yes. of the 18th Circuit, <laughs> 18th <laughs> Circus Civil Court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Dukakis appointed. Dukakis, Dukakis appointed. Oh, wait, that means Which, that Mike Dukakis was president. Well, actually, so I had that same well, question, and yeah, uh, that was the that. rabbit hole that I was oh, going okay. down while we oh, were uh, working good, good. out yeah, things. So uh, Dukakis, it may not have been that Dukakis was president because Dukakis was governor of um, not California, oh. Massachusetts. Oh. So he was I governor of both? That. Wait. No, just what? of Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm so used to saying governor of California that it just came out like that, but yeah. So he was governor of Massachusetts, so he would have Mm -hmm. appointed uh, judges in his state, Is that true? Yes, that is true. That's true. Circuit courts? Well, I I thought all uh, circuit... Isn't isn't the 18th Circuit Court a federal court? I don't know. It said civil court. Oh. Yeah, but that doesn't... Civil court is. Uh, I know that in Colorado, just today, there was a thing in the paper that uh, our governor Polis has not has appointed somebody to the state supreme court. Mm. So I think that governors do uh, some appointments. I don't know though with federal court. Oh, that would be, oh, it is. You're right. Is yes. So, court? so it, it's no. It's referring to. Well, it shouldn't matter. What, I don't. Okay. I guess there maybe isn't a federal civil court. Um, but this my my googling has led me to believe that this refers to an 18th Circuit state court. Okay. So, so that, the governor would, would appoint those judges. Dukakis was governor of Massachusetts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and, when was um, he governor? Was, he was governor. Uh, let Late me, 80s? Um, so he was the 65th and 67th governor of Massachusetts. He was in office from January 6th, 1983 to January 3rd, 1991. And oh. then again... Okay. Um, when he... Yeah, so that was the, the yeah that was the sixty seventh. He was sixty fifth governor, uh, nineteen seventy five to nineteen seventy nine. Oh wow! Ah, oh, so that fits in the think, timeline of this book. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you think there yeah, is anyone who's been the governor of more than one state? Well, that's an interesting thought. That is an interesting thought. I I don't think so, but it's in a Google um, machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, while we're googling that. Uh, just a few other things about Dukakis. Um, yeah. One, um, I looked at the presidential campaign map, and he only won, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven states, I believe, it Ouch. looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, Ouch. carrying only 10 states in the District of Columbia. Ouch. Samuel Houston was the sixth governor of Tennessee and the seventh governor of Texas. Really? And is the only American Uh. to be elected governor of two different states in the United States. Wow. Okay. And I would um, never connect him with Tennessee. Look at that. In that picture, I think he looks more Tennessean. That is a ridiculous tie that he's wearing. What is that? It's (laughs) like somebody gave him an ascot, but he couldn't figure it out, so he just tied it in a bow. Yeah. Or a cravat that he just decided to turn into a bow tie. 
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Paisley That's lining on that coat, too. He's a boy. So then we get this tangent that Bruce Green kind of goes on here, where he hears Polynesian music coming from somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, then um, we move into a Bruce Green interlude, sort of, more about Bruce. Yeah. So first of all, we get the first use of a phrase that I remember vividly from uh, my <laughs> first read through of this book that I really like, and I feel like comes up a few times from this point on, which is uh, when a small child is described as being hydrant size. Hydrant hmm. size. That is, that's cute. That is mm-hmm. I have integrated that into my lexicon. <laughs> Because oh. I like it that much. It's really good. It's evocative. Mm-hmm. Particularly, like, imagine a small child in a snowsuit or something. Right. Yes! Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, yeah, there's this really awful story of the uh, the can oh, of that was a macadamia terrible, nuts that, that turns was out terrible. to be a gag gift. Yeah. Right, right. That ends with his mother's death and... Mm-hmm. and and he was the and and he lovingly wrapped it up for her because he right. thought so it he was feels macadamia. guilty. He thought right. it was macadamia nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as a toddler, how right. was he supposed right. to know any different? He was five. Mm-hmm. What he he was so excited to have something nice to give her. Speaking of his father, so he was an aerobics guy on buns of steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which actually was a, like a really popular fitness program in the late 80s. I looked it up. Looked yeah, it up. yeah. I, and I it was, and it was like... started by a pole vaulter. Started oh, up, really? Started the program, yeah. Huh. Bones of Steel. But then his, he stopped doing that, right? Because his... Oh, yeah, because one was, of his legs shrank. His, le- his legs or one of the... They became different in length. Either, either yeah, one grew like or six one inches. shrunk like six inches different. And mm-hmm. so then he went off to work for this novelty gag company, which made yeah. me I never liked about it. the Quebec-y, uh brothers with oh, their right. novelty. The Antitois brothers. Yeah, the Antitois oh, yeah. brothers. Yeah. yeah. Who are it, also the novelty gag people. Right. Is yeah, and I found it very telling <laughs> that um, basically um, Green's father's soul died while working for a novelty toy company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole story also contributes to this idea that what that we're this world is like a a slapstick dystopia, kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. right. So related to Bruce Green's father, <clears throat> yeah. On page five seventy nine, he takes up drinking, and we learn that at some point he is breaking into a tiny tentative gluteal thruster squat and kick, almost falling, muttering bitterly, carrying a Falstaff tall boy. For you Shakespearean scholars, you know that Sir John Falstaff is a Shakespearean character. And that character most famously comes up in King Henry IV, part one, where he is the companion to the young Prince Hal, mm. who is the future oh. King Henry V. Oh. Yeah, man, I forgot about oh. that. I totally forgot that there was a Hal in Shakespeare. Fun times. But there's also more fun facts for you about Falstaff Brewing Corporation, which indeed was a real corporation. It's a, or it was an American brewery founded in St. Louis, Missouri. Fun fact, it survived Prohibition by selling 
near beer, soft drinks, okay. and cured hams? <laughs> Which seems like a strange combination. Weird. After Prohibition, the first two cases of Falstaff uh, beer that were brewed uh, were airlifted to the governors of Illinois and Missouri. Ah! And in 1990, the brand name became a licensed property of Pabst and uh, oh. was ultimately discontinued in May 2005. Wow. Okay. wow. I had a question, just sort of a general question about this section. Uh, yeah. Is, is this whole story about the Christmas Eve when Bruce was five and his mother had her heart attack? and I mean, the family disaster happened. Does he remember this? Or are we just being told this by the narrator? Because I doesn't think, it sort of imply that he um, he is a mess and he doesn't maybe like he doesn't exactly fully understand know why he doesn't yeah fully why understand like why Polynesian music that. is so haunting to him right. yeah I thought about that right. too it's like the narrator has more insight into Bruce Green than Bruce than Green he, does than Bruce does oh, right for yeah. sure yeah so who mm -hmm. is narrating. Oh I don't know. my gosh, Sorry. I love Sorry. this question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so who yeah, would know I mean, more about Bruce Green than Bruce Green? I, I mean, this is, the, this is the thing about the positionality of the narrator in like everything that we read, but particularly yes. this stuff we read about uh, Ennett House residents. Right, that, yeah. Because right. this is like a common, a common trait that a lot of those residents right. don't have a lot of self self-knowledge or self-awareness to why they are where they are right yeah uh, but the mm -hmm. and the narrator like knows them inside and out but also has the the ability to step back and kind of connect cause and effect in some ways that they themselves right, that they can't. can't yeah it seemed like it was being told as bruce green telling us but i don't mm -hmm. think that's the case i mean i, I agree no yeah. But it was yeah, definitely. If anything, it's told as like some part of Bruce Green telling some other part of Bruce Green. Right. Some, you know? some yeah. hidden part of Bruce Green telling us what it won't tell the biggest, like his real conscious self. Right. Somehow. Right. Yeah. Right. Because going back to the original question, I think this is something that Bruce Green remembers, but I don't think he necessarily is able to connect it with uh, why he finds Polynesian music so haunting and hypnotizing. Right. right. Mm -hmm. There's some, a really haunting image here too, of the, like the living room sort of frozen in time after right. this disaster. Right. That, mm -hmm. right. Uh, yeah. The, the tree, the presence still sitting there and the one kind right. of swelling up ominously uh, and yikes. the snake right. still hanging from the chandelier. Right. Yeah. Tree drying up and dropping all its needles right. and the lights burning out. sort of. Yeah. Uh, right. And, you know, it's going back to, you know, for this being a famously, um, Unfilmable. Oh, yeah, unfilmable mm -hmm. book. But right. this is a very cinematic mm -hmm. image, I feel. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like something out of Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. It's another reference here that I just dipped my toe into. It's talking about uh, when when Mr. Green is being uh, executed, is, is convicted right. and executed. Because he, because he started blowing people up. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, he did it once. He's, he sent out, he, he just added... Uh, hi, like high explosives to one shipment of exploding cigars, and it killed a right. bunch of people. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. Shriners, specifically. Shri- Shriners. Oh, right. Shriners. Yes. Uh, uh, there's there's a mention, so there, it's talking about Bruce Green and his aunt at the, right. uh, at the execution, and they mention Defarge-like picnickers milling and roiling. Right, right. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. right. Did anyone else look into this? I just I did, did a quick Google. Defarge. I, I looked yeah. up Defarge. Yeah, because uh, it um, yeah, sounded familiar to me. At first I was thinking it was a Les Miserables reference, but I got my French Revolution novels mixed up because it's actually a <laughs> tale of two cities tale of reference. Tale two cities, right. Yeah. And she, Madame Defarge is a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. and specifically, she's she's like a chief villain of the piece. I haven't read it, but I was just skimming the Wikipedia page. Oh, okay, I yeah, saw yeah, that she's... Play once. Yeah, and there's some like yeah. connections to Greek mythology, sort of, with her. Did you find that? Hmm. I uh, I didn't that, get that far. That there was somebody analyzing the character of Madame Defarge. It must have been in the Wikipedia article. Yeah, that, uh, that she represents one aspect of the fates. The Mori, uh, Greek mythology, who used yarn to measure out the life of a man and cut it to end it. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I can see that. Because her um, knitting secrecy secretly encodes the names of people to be killed. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and that's the big thing that I remember about Defarge is that yeah, she's she like constantly knitting, knitting, but she's knitting like basically her hit list. The thing and, that yeah. I yeah. Uh, that I thought might be most directly relevant from the the my skimming was that it, it describes her as uh, being obsessed with revenge against a family for crimes a prior oh. generation had committed. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is interesting because in this case, the people at this execution are clamoring for the the punishment of this person who actually killed some people. But so, Bruce. But Bruce Green ends up paying the price, too. Yeah, he does. And he probably wouldn't have seen it like that at the time, either. Right. I thought it was also interesting. I mean, so he lived with his aunt after his mm-hmm. father was drug away to prison. Um, and she was a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and the, the other cinematic sort of thing, I just pictured them so clearly. She's in this little pillbox hat that mm-hmm. she wore with a veil. There's another veil yeah. reference, yeah. and she drug this little boy uh, to this to the prison where his father was being held and where he would be executed, and was handing out Seventh Day Adventist tracts outside the the prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it describes so her as decent but dust bowly looking, which I quite mm-hmm. like. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, right before the part where we find out about his aunt. Um, we get a little flavor text where um, right when Bruce's mother was dying, his father was rating her on a gag scale. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, for the first couple minutes, Mr. Green thinks he's putting them on and he keeps rating her performance on an Acme interdepartmental right. one to eight gag scale until he finally gets pissed off and mm. starts saying she's drunk the gag out too long. Right. Mm. Because he thinks she's faking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. He thinks That's that she's messing it. with him. Yeah. Which is part yeah. of the horror of it all, isn't yeah. it? Right. Yeah. Right. And I was thinking that lends to the slapstick dystopia that we were talking right. about. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I also thought that it was just another picture of cruelty to children. I mean, mm-hmm. his father... So his father was into... was 
working on the with in this novelty gag company that he didn't even like. Mm-hmm, he didn't right. like it, but he was apparently embracing being the jokester. Uh, mm-hmm. But if he was really if he really wanted to play a joke on his wife, why wouldn't he have wrapped the gift from him to her and to make it right? Even even if it hadn't ended up being deadly, it was a cruel thing to have this yeah. little boy lovingly wrap what he thought was one of his... Yeah. Bruce would have felt terrible. It's not what he yeah. wanted to give his mother. He wanted to give her these uh, macadamia nuts that she so right. loved. Yeah. And, and that wasn't what... And his father didn't let him in on the joke. So it's... No. Like, he didn't say, oh, this will be so funny, let's wrap this up for her. He He was... He was lying to Bruce, really, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what was happening. And he was roping him into this trick that he wasn't a part of. It was so mean. So Green is thinking about these things, and he kind of comes to realize that Lens isn't around anymore. And right. he's sort of just Could wandering I- through... yeah. I just had another thought too. It's so interesting because so we have the story of Lentz's mother's demise, and we have the story of Bruce Green's parents' demise, and they're both like these fantastically, ridiculously tragic, horrible sort of stories. And yet I feel such sympathy and compassion for Bruce, and I feel such sort of a cold uh acknowledgement of Lentz for some reason. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't, well, I don't feel I mean, very for sorry one thing, or... Lentz is going around murdering animals. Well, yeah. There's yeah. That. Yeah. For one thing, Lentz is yeah, a sociopath. Right. Um, and yet, you know, he was also mistreated as a child. I think his parents were terrible. And so why don't I feel sympathy for him turning out to be a sociopath? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't though. I, I like I hold him totally responsible for who he is. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Green, I'm I feel more forgiving about. I just feel sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, same here. So he's he's just wandering through the streets, and he winds up. He's sort of following this music, not really consciously, but he's right. like getting closer and closer to it. Right. Um, and he he winds up in this neighborhood where there is a. Uh, uh, some kind of a house party. Well, and he's mm-hmm. near the unexamined life nightclub again, right? Yeah. yeah. He, wand- he either wanders past it or or the house where the party is is near it or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he winds up at this outside this house where this party's going on that's playing this music really loud. Um, and people are and wearing he- flannel shirts and the Quebec flag is flying. Yeah, which is, you know, this is, again, it's like the, the Quebec affinity for Hawaiian culture. Right, thing. exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Um, Although it also reminds me of college parties that are themed to the right. teeth. And right. It's just. Right. Mm-hmm. I thought that well, bad. It's, and it's he a little even, bad. He mm-hmm. even talks about going to, like, crashing a college party that is, like, island themed. And and has people like the truck in sand, sand, and there's right. people right. in grass skirts and right. Hawaiian shirts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there he is, and he watches Lentz kill the dog. Yeah, mm-hmm. Lentz, who he's lost track of. Right. He kind of he's he 
finds him again, realizes he's walking behind, or Lens is walking in front of him, and he just doesn't say anything. He just kind of stands back and Stands watches. back in the shadows, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, I felt conflicted about that, too. Yeah. I wondered why he didn't, like, step out and confront him. Really. I mean, I wonder he? if Green's a little afraid of Lens. I guess maybe. I guess I would be afraid of... I, I suppose anyone who spends time with Lens would be a, a little afraid of him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also, I think, the, is it, they, they talk about, uh, is it Calvin Thrust describes Bruce Green as being, like, almost dissociated? Um, mm. He's so disconnected, and, and it's not it's not just that he's laid back, it's like he's... He's just completely disconnected from the realities of his life. Yeah. But is it at this part where we learn that the the people come out of the party and head off, and go running off looking for who killed their dog, right? Mm-hmm. Right. They, yeah. they see Lance running away and they're wearing boots and he's faster than them. Right. So he's mm-hmm. but but then they take off in a car after mm-hmm. them, which I do not think this is going to end well for Lens, particularly right. because there's at least one AFR person at this party. Right, mm-hmm. right. I can't these imagine are, these are killer. It. These are killers at this party, yeah. and they're not going to let yeah. this lie. So it was unfortunate for him that he targeted one of their pets. Right. Yeah. Uh, and because I so dislike Lens, I'm like cheering them on. Like, go get mm-hmm. him! Mm-hmm. Stop this guy! You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel merciless toward Lens. I just don't like him. I don't like that his presence in this book involves these pages and pages of horrible animal abuse, which I don't want to read. Mm-hmm. So I hold, mm-hmm. I, I hold him responsible for that, <laughs> for my having to read it or skip it or whatever. Do you want a fun fact about Don Ho? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So I can picture uh, his face. Don Ho, I, I can picture his face. He's best known for the song Tiny Bubbles, which uh-huh. doesn't sound stereotypically Polynesian like the book is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does have a connection to the Boston area. Oh, really? Uh, mm. Yeah, oh, he attended Springfield College on a football scholarship uh-huh. in 1950. Oh, my gosh. But he actually finished his degree in sociology at University of Hawaii huh. in 1953. That's the year I was born. Oh. <laughs> just, <gasps> just for an oldie reference. <laughs> Schmaltzy Hawaiian music. That's what I think of when I think of Don mm-hmm. Ho. Mm-hmm. Very schmaltzy. It was very popular. So was that all that we heard about Lentz and Green? And then we moved on to others. Or we yeah, then we moved on to Mario. Yeah. yeah. Can I um, ask one question, though, before we move on? Mm-hmm. Um, on 583... There's a line that says a non-peanut M&M box is like intaglioed into the concrete of the sidewalk under green. And I wanted to double check with everyone. Non-peanut M&Ms. Those are like the plain plain, M&Ms, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the original M&Ms. Why don't they just say like plain? Plain That is is funny. Yeah, I'm not sure. It implies that there is... That the peanut M&M's are kind of the default, and you need to clarify if they're not. That's because everyone knows that the peanut M&M's are better, unless you're allergic to peanuts. Mm -hmm. They're just Peanut butter M&M's are better. 
Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, we could have a fight. We could have a fight about that. Although the fudge brownie ones also. Fudge brownie ones are pretty good. I It, it seems uh, a controversial opinion, but I really like the uh, the coffee nut ones. Ooh, oh, yes. yeah. Those okay. are good, too. True confession. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there were all these different kinds. In yeah. my, mind, <laughs> in my yes. mind, when I think of M&Ms, I think of either plain or peanut. And yeah. Well, I think these ones peanut. that we're talking about now are pretty new. Like, okay. they've just come out in the past couple the, of years. The huh, peanut butter M and M's have been around M&Ms. for a while. You should, mom, you should try the peanut butter M and M's. You would really like them. Hmm. I'm clearly uninformed, but no. that's okay. And but why are they in the side intaglio in the sidewalk? Why M and M's? Why? I don't know. Somebody dropped the box and it's been walked over. I was imagining. So intaglio is a incised um, yeah, uh, carving as opposed to carving in relief. Or um, a gem, mm. seal, piece of jewelry, or the like, cut with an incised or sunken design. Um, mm-hmm. A figure or design produced by engraving. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think of, of intaglio printmaking, where you take like a metal plate and you you scrape into it, and then right. that creates crevices where the ink right. sits. So right. I'm imagining this is like, you know, as as the M and M box has been stepped on over and over again, it's been kind of ground down into the the pits of the concrete, and the oh, top okay. parts have been okay. worn away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On five eighty five, it had referenced uh, Ducey. I think Frank Ducey, who's a character. Oh, there it is. Yeah, oh. Ducey's snakes. Um, who yeah. I had completely forgotten about, but yeah, he's the snake man who. Um, or Daddy bought his oh. marijuana from. Oh. Yeah. Yes. I was just going to draw the parallel between the, the snake and the macadamia nut can oh. and uh, oh. Ducey's snakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was going to um, ask, uh, did we get some more backstory or flavor text about uh, Bruce Green before this? Or is this kind of the first time that we found out about him? Yeah, Yeah, so we we learned... Well, he's the one who was uh, in love with Mildred Bonk. And, like, tries to... Yeah, and and lived with um, Ducey, and, yeah. Then she leaves and takes the child. Do we know why he ended up in treatment? Well, he was homeless for a while. Um, I forget exactly how he wound up at Ennett House. Do we know what race Bruce Green is? That's a good question. Yeah. I don't don't think that we know. Okay. That's such a funny thing. That's such a funny question for you to ask because it makes me realize that I tend to, like if it's not mentioned, if their appearance is not described, I I envision them as being white. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. weird and white of me. Yeah. Yeah. White of me. We all so live in a racist society. Mm-hmm. Yep. We do. Yeah, but... I mean, there's no reason he can't be of another race. Right, yeah. Well, because I've been reading him as black. I mean, he could be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting point. No, that's going to bother me. That will sad. bother me now for... About why I assume that. I'm with you, though. I also... Although, just naturally assume. You know, I yeah. thought about that watching film stuff is when you're casting your characters, is it possible when you're doing that to be race neutral? Like you don't care, like you don't have a picture of what they look like, or do you, 
or do you? It's so have it's a funny picture? you say this because I think that this is this is part of the the issue of entrenched racism in right. the film and entertainment uh-huh. industries because mm-hmm. it's there was a. One of the first times that I really gave this any thought was years ago when Woody Allen was like, "Well, I don't have, I don't have any uh, opposition to casting black actors in my right. films," which he almost never does. Right. Um, right. But but, um, you know, I don't I don't write their race in the in the story. Right. And, and 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 that's you know that's maybe to his credit. There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to hate Woody Allen, but whatever. Right. But mm-hmm. I think that. I think that there's also this power structure around white filmmakers like Woody Allen that, right. you know, they work with the same casting directors over and over. And those casting right. directors know that Woody Allen is looking for someone who's kind of a stand in for himself in most of his characters. And so they're going to yeah. they're going to invite people to audition who are white. And right. uh, and and maybe, you know, if we give him the benefit of the doubt, like maybe he doesn't know that that's going on. But still, like, come on. But you'd have there's, to wonder. There's a reason why that your movies are so white. Yeah. Right. white. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wouldn't you notice? But it, but yeah. it was just a it was just a thought I had that when you're writing a book or you're directing, you picture your characters. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you how well, do you start to picture the wide range of? I mean, in most, in some cases, in some cases. Ow race and the racial experience is like a key part of the character. Mm-hmm. Right. But in other cases, you know, if you're casting a human who's in rehab at Ennett House, why the hell does it matter what race they are? It is funny because I've noticed that a lot of the time when when the narration introduces a character at, at Ennett House who is black, like somebody uh-huh. who's going into, into rehab right. there, um, that those characters are their, their skin color is described specifically, or or they're physically described in ways that have like oh. race indicators. Uh-huh. But white characters usually don't get you know they don't talk about how pale the skin is in in of white characters the same right. way that we get so much description of like how dark the skin of black characters right. is. Yeah. Well, wouldn't. Wouldn't you want to describe how pale a white character is? Because then you could also, for effect, talk about how sickly they look. Right. And right. and I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the book. I just think that it seems right. like when the book is describing somebody's yeah. skin, that character is a person Like color. the incandenses, mm-hmm. I think, are described. Uh, Mario's skin, co- skin tone is described, and CT's skin tone is described, and so they do some, but, but sometimes. But because but, they're because their skin tones are unusual, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Whereas I would argue that a black person's skin tone is not unusual. It's not unusual, but it's treated as though it's unusual. Right, because yeah. the narrator is like, ah, yes, something that is not the Different than default. Me. Different, than right? Me. Yeah. 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 The, so the there's people of has color. There's people ideas. of color. Yeah, there's people of color and then there's normal people. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry to digress here, but that is an interesting <laughs> thing to to chase a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, I think it definitely is, you know, once you start doing um I think it's called resistant reading, right, Priyana? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um you do kind of start to realize yeah, your own biases and everything, and right. it's definitely something worth um, pursuing. Right. 
as we try to claw our way out of our racist uh, selves, mm-hmm. our like unexamined racist selves, why those are questions that do come up, like why, why do we jump to this picture of a character when we're reading, or why... Mm-hmm. At least Vinny imagines Bruce Green to be black. I mm-hmm. never imagined that. So, Vinny, you are apparently more open to possibilities of, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> of racial diversity than me. Because if you have to make a point of a character being black, then, then it's like you're saying that it's unusual or, or out of the ordinary. Instead mm, of just, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just you're acknowledging the fact that race politics exist in the world mm-hmm. right i think it um, depends on how you're writing the character like i said for some in some characters their their racial identity really defines helps to define the character and the things that they experience but in other doesn't in it other always cases, though i mean it does but it's sometimes it's more like a, more of a piece of the story if you know what I mean. Right. I mean, yes, our race always defines us and defines how we see the world and everything, but in some stories. Yeah, it's not necessarily at the crux of the dramatic It's not the crux of it, right. It doesn't necessarily uh, help to understand the character in in that story, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, but that's like the in whole, my point, I mean, <laughs> for my point, it would be like any just regular story could have people of of many different races in it, just because mm-hmm. that's how the world is. Because we are mm-hmm. we're diverse, we're diverse species, and so it it makes sense that not all of us in a book would be white, but it but it may not be a focus of the story. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. well. It will help explain why a character behaves as they do, probably. But is it the job of the writer of a book to tell us what someone's race is? Like, eh. Or oh. is, it, is it their job to tell us the humanness of the character? I think uh, I'm immediately suspicious of a narrator whose job it is to tell us when some characters are black, but not to tell right. us when all the other characters yeah. are right. white. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like, do they, and, and what does it say? Like on one, I, I could argue either, either way that like Brianna says, you know, your race does really, uh, it, it, it impacts how you see the world and how you act in the world and everything. It does. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of who we are. And yet to assume as a writer to think that, that you have to write different write a character different because of their race is not necessarily, I could argue that that's not necessary either. That if you're writing about humans behaving, you know, doing something uh, in a murder mystery, say, which I read a lot of, does it really Mm -hmm. matter? Does it matter? Well, if you're setting a story in contemporary society, then it has to matter. Yeah. But yeah. That means that you well, have to even describe if, everyone's I mean, racial racial identification in a book, every character that you bring into the story. Well, is there's it the there's no there's that? no or is it the reader's Yeah, I mean, it's it's the writer's the job to I think it's the writer's job to be aware of these issues and to describe right. them when it's relevant and not just mm-hmm. when right. things are like 
not right. not conforming to that author's perceived norms. You know? Right, because that's right. lazy writing. Right. right. Whereas yeah. what you could be doing is you could be writing... I don't know. You could be writing people's show don't tell. So show people how people treat this person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe that'll give you an idea of what that what... person looks like. Right. Because I don't know. They're they're straightening issue. up and they're like, oh, oh, sir, how can I help you? Versus like following them around and. It feels the like store. I don't know. right. Yeah. yeah, it feels like it. Can yeah. go it can go either way. Like and, and the discounting thing, the, and not including uh, information about a character's race can be downplaying the importance of our racial identity, but making too much of it can make it seem like like a different type of human. When really, you know, our responses. To certain things in a fiction, in a work of fiction. Sometimes I could make the case that making too big of an issue about the race of the characters is, is making it seem like it matters to our humanness, what race we are. My argument would be that a lot of the descriptions that, that mention a character's race when that character is black, are, that it's really not germane to anything. Right. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. just like thrown in for texture. Right. Uh, e- even in this chapter, it Which mentions that the, the section with Gately mentions uh, Ruth Van Cleve, who looks like one of those people you see in pictures of African famine. Which is like right. it's an evocative image, so but I'm 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 pretty certain that Ruth Van Cleve's race has nothing to do with the story being told. Right. And yeah. Uh, you know, I I find it unlikely that we'll hear much of anything from Ruth Van Cleve in right. the future, and and right. yet. That it's for whatever reason the narrator or the author found it relevant and necessary to include that description. Like there's other descriptions you could put there that aren't racialized. So why right. why is right. it racialized? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. My instinct is to think that's the narrator. But really. yeah, it's it's tough to it's Hard tough to, to know. I I think I. I want to agree with you, and I think that I probably can because I think that David Foster Wallace is a pretty scrupulous author of narration. But yeah, I don't know. It also feels like an easy excuse. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know. Yeah. So sorry to digress. Big. Well, no, that was good. That was <laughs> but, that was a good discussion. And I yeah. feel like it's been it's been coming for a while, and probably yeah. it'll come up again. Yeah, it probably mm-hmm. will. Probably it will. But now we should forge ahead to Mario's 19th birthday. Yeah, will be Wednesday, the 25th of November, the day before Thanksgiving. Which was a so, super weird um, shift in tense. I just yeah. think that it's weird that it was like, it will be oh, Wednesday, yeah. November right. 25th. Right. Which is also next Wednesday, by the way. It or this is. Upcoming yes, yes. as, as we're recording. I'm, I'm sure that by the time this is out, it will have passed. But yes, <laughs> yeah. that's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what day are we on? Is this the 20... We're around November 11th, aren't we? With the, like at Enfield? I think Wasn't so. Wasn't it around the 11th? Oh yeah, the, the, the last date heading we get is Wednesday, November 11th. Right. Yeah. So this is a jump ahead. This uh, with Mario. 
Well, no, it's not. It's still it's still taking place because that's why the narration is like that oh. because it's saying that's his birthday is in, his weird. birthday will be in two weeks oh, from be. where we okay. are right now. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Weird. The day before Thanksgiving in this in mm-hmm. this book, we learn more about him and his Madame Psychosis thing. Like mm-hmm. he's really a wreck. He is yeah. quite a wreck. Like he's, he's not he's, sleeping. He's got yeah. Uh, it's his third week without Madame Psychosis. Mm-hmm. Says something like, "It's weird to feel like you miss someone you're not even sure you know." Yeah, I love that. I really yeah. like that a lot. Yeah. He tried listening to some old shows of hers, right? But that wasn't really good. And so now he's listening to well, WODSAM. So uh, yeah. Which actually is, there really is a WODSAM in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, just so you know. Oh. Huh. So he's, he's struggling. Mario is struggling. Mm-hmm. And it talks more about this familial dysautonomia. Familial, right. yeah. familial dysautonomia. He was on the stove, right? He was yeah. leaning on the stove, and he doesn't feel pain. and Which also know. makes him feel kind of fearless, which is right. interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learn that he prays every night for like an hour. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, and he describes I, it as it's conversing with God. He just converses with right. God for around an hour every night. I think mm-hmm. it's sweet. Mm-hmm. It is. Well, it, it also, I mean, it also doesn't specifically mention God, which I thought was interesting. It just, he says it's more like a conversation with, with who or what we don't really right. know. Right, 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 right. Um, so he's a spiritual guy. He's, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's a... Um, we also learn that uh, Avril gets night terrors. Right, right. And when he, Which when adds, Mario hears her upstairs in her room, he's never sure whether she's laughing or whether she's having night terrors. Like mm-hmm. her laugh is, mm-hmm. she has a weird laugh, which mm-hmm. I think yeah. we've learned about before. Yeah, um, that adds so a whole sure. new texture to, to right. that, my, my understanding of that household. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also learn that Mario has been sleeping at the headmaster's house. Apparently mm-hmm. the last three weeks, maybe, since Madame Psychosis has gone off air because he he kind of wants to be close to the radio, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but that Hal has asked him when he'll come back to their mm-hmm. room to sleep. And, and that makes Mario feel really good that Hal, yeah. Hal yeah. wants him to be back. He's also having this huge anxiety around Hal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He used to be able to like he felt like he knew what Hal was thinking and what he's doing and now all of a sudden he can no longer sense. Uh, yeah. How yeah, Hal that he's is basically and what he's doing anymore. Yeah, lost Hal and that's and kind of And there's this big uh, yeah. I have this big thing where I had uh stars and hearts and a sad face of this quote uh, mm-hmm. this worries him and feels like when you've lost something important in a dream and you can't even remember what it was but it's important. Mario loves Hal so much it makes his heart beat hard. He doesn't have to wonder if the difference now is him or his brother because Mario never changes. Mm-hmm. So he knows that something has changed with Hal. And yeah. he's really heartsick about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so he's out kind of wandering Enfield at night. Which we didn't um, we learn about that before that he goes we learned before that he is known. Uh, 
down like he's a neighborhood in the town. Personality. Like he's a no, yeah, that the stores yeah. and shop people know him, and he's very beloved out walking about. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, the, this was a little it, bit more detail about that walking. And the yeah, fact there's that a he's mention of uh, father and son grocery. Uh, uh-huh. I think has come up before. We also find out that he's been in Ennett House a couple times. Pat right. has invited right. him in for a soda. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, we also know that when he walks around at night, he he tries to stay fairly close because he knows that Avril that is that his mother worries about him when she's out and. And he worries a lot about her worrying about him. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. doesn't he doesn't go real far. We also have um, EndNote 242, uh, where we find out that um, Mario is basically dangled from the uh, top of a transom. They, they've mentioned oh. this before. Yeah. That, that yeah. He, he plants his feet on the edge of the catwalk, and he uh, like a, a burly pro rector kind of holds him out over the edge. Right. So that he can yeah. shoot footage Film. of the yeah. practices. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a little reference to the. I was. I looked at the filmology again. The uh, mm. film that his that that James O made. Dial C for con- concupiscence. Concupiscence. Uh, where the there's a mention about that the security offer officers is that at Ennett House. The, like the campus where Ennett House is, that medical, mm. that that, mm-hmm. that the security officers from that place where Ennett House is part of the, like the campus of buildings there, uh, that they played Boston police officers in that yeah. in James there, film, which they described as whimsical. <laughs> yes, there's there's been mention there's been mention of this before that yeah. that Hal Hal met some of them. Right. Uh, when they were making this film, and he right. occasionally bumps into them at the Unexamined Life, and they right. tell cop stories and stuff. It was interesting because they describe that film as whimsical, and it's but it's the thing where where the woman falls in love with an armless Near Eastern medical attaché. Oh, oh! I looked up the I looked up the reference in the filmography. That was hmm. in the year of the trial size dub bar that they made that movie. Hmm. So not long before he died. And a reference to the armless near uh, Near Eastern medical attaché. Isn't the medical attaché Near Eastern in the, the one who gets yeah, the energy? Is, yeah. is he Saudi or... or right, so I what's think that so, about? yeah. Why the reference yeah, to him? Coincidence? Yeah, coincidence? Just, just pure coincidence. Coincidence? Like pure coincidence? Well, no, there's also the oh, thing when, when no he's... There's no such thing as coincidence. When he's, um, <laughs> when he's uh, being the conversationalist, he accuses Avril of having an affair with a medical attaché. Oh, that's right. Mm. So medical mm. attaché keeps coming up. Well, and so that was that what this movie was? Where someone falls in love with an armless Near Eastern medical attaché? I thought it was... <laughs> I thought it was really odd that it was, it's, it's described as whimsical, the whimsical uh, hmm. dial C, because it doesn't sound very whimsical. Oh, a lot of honestly. things could be whimsical. I, I, I I'd have to see it to know for sure. <laughs> I, I mean, there's lots of movies that have very serious sounding summaries, <sighs> and then you watch them and they're odd and whimsical. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Back to your comment about how uh, Mario has been inside Ennett House. There's also the big, uh, a big chunk about about how much he likes Ennett House. 
Uh, yeah. He likes it in there. Nobody comments on disabilities and uh, the she he describes uh, is it Pat is the is the head person there right uh, mm-hmm. described calls her the headmistress right the HM mm-hmm. is kind mm-hmm. and people cry in front of each other and it's very real and people go there to get less unhappy uh, mm-hmm. and once he heard somebody say God with a straight face. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that he really has the the couple times that he's been in there, he was he really yeah, he liked has, the place. Yeah, very positive association. Yeah, 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 he finds it honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he hears um, he hears Madame Psychosis broadcast being played right. on the tape, which mm-hmm. I assume is Joelle listening. It must to, be Joelle. Right. Upstairs, yeah, yeah, right? Joelle listening to herself. Yeah, and he wonders um, if yeah, he's like the peeping Tom the. Mm-hmm. It's a little creepy. Oh. Speaking uh, of which, we watched Peeping Tom. Oh. There's a movie, Peeping Tom. Mm-hmm. We were talking That's about... Oh, yeah, we scary. talked about this a couple oh, of weeks okay. ago. Okay. We, the, the poster in, the, it's the poster in James O's childhood bedroom. Oh, okay, right. Um, yeah, it's the, the movie where the like the anti-hero is murdering people and, and filming them as he kills them because he wants to record their expression of pure terror. Great. Mm. This sounds like a movie for me. Don't you think son? <laughs> I don't think you would like it. I, I did. I thought it was pretty good. I, I it can be, um, it can be really good and have me not like it. We all, yeah, we all accept that. Yeah. So the cinematography mm. was excellent. It was like a technicolor thing. It was beautiful. Uh-huh. Oh, Oh, that's the movie that got such horrible reviews initially, and then and then the right. reviewers kind of yeah. recanted and said, "We're sorry, it was really good." Somehow, yeah, and it, you you were right, Vinny. It's a, it's got a Criterion release. Huh. Okay. So it was a significant it was a significant film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? I think so. To yeah. get a Criterion mm. release, you have to be considered mm-hmm. significant in some way. So yeah, so he's list- He hears the Madame Psychosis tape and he wonders if he wonders if uh the person who's listening to it would let him borrow a tape right he's mm-hmm. wishing mm-hmm. wishing he could borrow a tape which is by the way for all of david foster wallace's mid-90s posturing about how bad irony was this is like textbook dramatic irony right here <laughs> but he doesn't know how to ask for it. I, that was the other kind of sadly amusing right. thing that he he would like to ask this person but he doesn't really he doesn't he needs uh, understand, advice. yeah, on etiquette. Like, he doesn't understand yeah. etiquette, so he always has to ask how. Then he talks about art, too. I can't remember what brought this up, but he's like, he says that it's increasing. I guess it's when he's, is it when he's listening in the window? It's, when he yeah, says so it's increasingly hard to find valid art that is about real stuff, and that, yeah, that at EPA, yeah, among older students, it's like, there's some sort of rule that real stuff can only be mentioned if everybody rolls their eyes and laughs in a way that isn't happy. Mm-hmm. I thought that mm-hmm. was that was really true. Isn't that kind of true of teenage? Yeah. Uh, well, and not just teenage. But I guess like, everybody. I agree. Like everyone over a certain age, you, you it feels like you get to a point where it's like you have to you have to couch your discussions of the real uh, in in like ironic distance or um, metaphor or something else in order right. for them to be acceptable. Right. The, and it describes this interaction where Pemulus is telling a joke that Mario laughs about, laughs right. at, and, right. and no one else, no one everyone else, else sort of looks down. 
That's interesting because I'm not, I don't really understand, like, it's, it's telling us about it because Mario doesn't really understand what that was about. And, and right. from his perspective, I don't really understand what this is about either. Does anyone have any I thought about, I remember thinking, I have to this? look at it again. Um, I have to kind of remember what it was. It's, it was, it's yeah. a joke about, Pemulus told Mario he had an idea for setting up a dial-a-prayer telephone service for atheists in which the atheist dials the number and the line just rings and rings and no one answers. Right. It was well, a, it was a joke and a good right? one. Yeah, and Mario got it. What was unpleasant Mario was that Mario it. was the only one at the big table whose laugh was a happy laugh. Everybody else sort of looked down like they were laughing at somebody with a disability. The whole issue right. was above Mario's head, and he was unable to understand Lyle's replies when he tried to bring the confusion up. And Hal was for once no help, because Hal seemed even more uncomfortable and embarrassed than the fellows at lunch. And when Mario brought up real stuff, Hal called him boo-boo and acted like he'd wet himself, and Hal was going to be very patient about helping him change. Right. That well, was also that very whole, sad. That made that me whole very thing sad. About, it's that whole thing, though, about uh, being willing to, to have a real conversation instead of a... Mm-hmm. Or a conversation yeah, a real about conversation. really like serious stuff. Like it just makes people uncomfortable. It makes them yeah. So Mario could hear this joke and and think, oh, that is really funny because it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of a it funny is. joke, and the yeah. others just felt like probably like, why are you telling a joke like this? It's like too serious. You're talking about God stuff, and you're. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I know. feel like seventeen-year-old boys would find that funny. Yeah, like, honestly, I, funny. Yeah, so I don't know. It feels like there's some other social thing at play here. Yeah. Like, like there's some context, some biographical context about what was going on with Pemulus when this happened that I'm missing. Or mm. I, I was like, I was trying to figure out when this happened in the 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 arc of the Pemulus right. plot. Right. Um. Oh, well, it was it was have... today at lunch. But you have uh, Mario who prays to whatever, whether you call it God or whatever. Mario mm -hmm. prays. Our, Mario is a he. He thinks about. He thinks about the idea of God, or by whatever name he calls that, that power, and mm -hmm. that maybe these the rest of these boys are like it's just too serious a topic. And so they mm -hmm. can't even laugh. It's a, that they can't, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to, they don't want to reveal what they, what they think maybe. Mm -hmm. And that somehow joking about it is, I don't know. Does it make them feel more vulnerable or uneasy because they're not, they're at that point in their lives when they're maybe not really wanting to examine what they think? I don't know. I think so. I yeah. I mean, I got it that. Um, either, you know, it's something that's, you know, going back to how nobody likes to talk about anything real with Mario that, right. um, right. you know, even if it is a joke and a funny joke, they don't necessarily want to laugh at that joke and show their genuine enjoyment of it right. because that would be showing something true and they don't right. want to do that. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't I, know either. It is kind of for Mario who says he has to refer all the questions of etiquette to Hal cause he really doesn't understand it. He is really insightful on the, on the topic of like when people let la people laugh and there is happy laughter and there is not happy laughter. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. know, there's that nervous, mm-hmm. uncomfortable laughter. There's the uh, sarcastic, ironic sort of laughter. There's happy laughter. So he's, in spite of his saying that he doesn't really understand etiquette, he is, he's tuned into those uh, sort of fine-tuned understanding of laughter, for instance. So perhaps, yeah. he's, perhaps he understands uh, people more than he thinks he does. I guess mm-hmm. I would say he's more insightful than he might think. Yeah, I think that's true. So we leave Mario in kind of this sad, sad and sorry state, right? He he leaves, mm-hmm. doesn't he leave? Yeah, he's Somebody well. He he suddenly feels so. Yeah, I don't think it's that he needs help, but he's like that little extra bit of help really makes the difference, right? Because um, he also suddenly realizes that he's extremely tired, right? Um, and so and somebody helps him up. get so somebody helps him get uh, unpropped from the window, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the they they help him back. disengage the bar and get the lead block into his back. Right, right. And don't say anything about him eavesdropping at the window. <laughs> 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 they don't call the police. This weird yeah. guy eavesdropping at our window because some of them would know him if he's been there a couple times, but a lot of them wouldn't know him. Yeah, so then we we go inside to see Don Gately. Right. Doing his nightly um, logs, right? Mm-hmm. The the kind of the theme of this section is that he has a bunch of tasks to do that are uh, at times picayune and at times unpleasant. Right. Yeah. Uh, and time consuming. It's that whole paperwork time, yeah. thing that we all Yeah. Anyone who has ever worked anywhere knows that the the paperwork is like you have to do it, but it's really not very rewarding. It's not the rewarding part of one's job. Mm-hmm. But he has to log everything. Mm-hmm. But you know what this all sounds a lot like? Hmm. Um, this, in combination with the paragraph about Kate Gompert making a sideways comment about hurting herself... And uh, the special way to kick somebody off a payphone that's respectful and non-shaming, right. but also firm, right. all sounds very much like my job. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not so different, is it? Uh, yeah, so I just want to say yeah. I am yeah. Don Gately. You're Don Gately, right. <laughs> I thought about that, actually, about, you know, the paper, the paperwork and the... And the yeah, trying to help people manage living together in a in a tighter space than they might be used to. Mm-hmm. I also enjoyed the uh, mention of Kate Gompert reading Sylvia Plate. Yes, that, that was good. Yeah, reading Sylvia Plate. Mm-hmm. And and those of us with cats, I love the the. That, he, that Don opens the meds cabinet and residents on meds respond to the sound of the meds locker the way a cat will respond to the sound of a can opener. They just like oh. materialize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is also a sign of the times, though, because mm-hmm. we don't use a can opener to open our cat food anymore. No. It has a tabbed lid. But back mm-hmm. then... Yeah. You had to use a can opener. The world sure has changed. The world has shifted. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the next thing, the next oh big invention will be some kind of uh, can opening system that a cat can manage itself. 
the next thing will be that you push a button on a can and the can disappears and you're just left with a handful left of wet a, cat food. Yes. So oh, yeah. the cats can open themselves yeah. so that they don't have to be dependent on their slacker humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also learned you that You always Gailey's... know the right disgusting thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank that you. Disgusting. Pate, mushy pate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fish, white fish with gravy or something. Can you imagine a handful of gravy? Just just think oh, about that for oh, a second. Yeah, that's oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> if you that happened, did this. Let me just say that if that happened to me, it would not be the, a cat that it, I would want. I would want a dog because they would come mm. take care of it much more yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. Speaking of gravy, have I ever mentioned that we sometimes refer to our cats collectively as the gravy balloons? Oh, Who is this oh, we? No. That's you very fitting. To. That's very fitting. Yeah, they're like, yeah. it, that's kind of what a cat is. It's like yeah. sort of a furry balloon full of uh-huh. gravy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's just Andrew. Andrew's the it's only not, one who does that. That is not true. The last <laughs> time so that true. anyone was called a gravy balloon in this house, it was you doing the calling. <laughs> I did. <laughs> not true. I could believe either of you saying such a thing. I can picture it. We also learned that uh, Don Gately's job will end after a year. I feel like we knew this already, but yeah, it's it's, it's definitely a reminder here. And then it's kind of nagging at him, really. Yeah, this is this. The reason that I thought about this was because I remember. Oh, it was also in regards to like the pro rectors that are that have these like one year appointments. Right, right, right. That it feels so much like grad school to me. Uh There's this description here. Gately right. every couple minutes wonders again what he'll end up doing when his year's staff term is up and his right. soul is sucked out and he's sober but without any money and still clueless and has to leave here and do something back out there. Right. I am convinced, I'm convinced that this is David Foster Wallace writing about his grad school experience. I think that sounds really <laughs> true. I would, I would buy that. Yeah. I would buy that. It related to that, though, it's interesting that there's that, uh, that soul-sucking uh, being referred to in here because that was also mentioned in Bruce Green's dad's soul being sucked out. Oh, oh right. right. Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. For the, right. the place. Right. Gately also points out that his job is not to be these people's friend. He says all the not all the time. Well, so, uh, the, the uh, time. somebody Sometimes. somebody brings it up because there is one of his bosses brings it up because they're concerned that he's too oh. he's too well liked oh, at right. the house. They like him. The, the oh, yeah. like and, him. And that that's not the point of, of right. being a staffer here. Right. Do you feel that's the case for you too, Brianna? <laughs> yes. That also um, sounds because... like being in charge of residence halls. <laughs> yeah, when I first started in this job, I was only 20 Three. Uh-huh. So I was maybe a year, year and a half right. older than right. my oldest uh, staff members. Right. And they really, really, really wanted to be my friend. And I really, really, really <laughs> didn't only because I was afraid that the professional boundary would get crossed there and right. then I'd get into right. a compromising situation. Right. Mm. And also I was dating this uh, really cute filmmaker and I <gasps> wanted him all for myself. Hmm. I have to share him with my staff members. Sneaky. Um, So, yeah, college students want to be your friend. And it's really, really sweet and flattering. But Uh at the same time, as a professional, it's complicated. Right. Mm -hmm. So Gately surely struggles with this himself. 
Yeah. In his position at Ennett House, yeah. it would be it would be similar. Like you do on the one hand, you do need to be friendly mm-hmm. and on friendly terms with people in a setting like like you work in and like his setting, and yet being friendly and being their friend are two different things, really. Right. So that brings us to the end of our reading. I was waiting mm-hmm. for so in the in when we have Mario looking in the window at Ennett House and we have Gately doing his logging for the night. I was waiting for Lentz to come tearing back with, oh God, with the others hot on his trail. And that didn't happen. So there yeah. again, I was left hanging. But I That would have yeah. been the cinematic thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, speaking I of cinematic, though, there up. there is a there is a really cinematic transition between Mario and Gately here. It says that as he's as Mario's headed back up the hill, uh, the last thing he sees behind him is a wide, square-headed boy bent over something he's writing at the headmistress's uh, black desk, licking a pencil mm. and punched all uncomfortably with one arm curled out around what he's writing in like a slow boy over a class theme at Ringe and Latin Special. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the lead-in to Don. I also think it's very charming that Mario refers to Pat, what's her name? Pat, Mon- uh, Pat Montesian. Montesian. Montesian as the headmistress. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. It definitely so is like amusing. that's the power structure he's familiar with. Right. Right. She's the woman in charge, so she must be the headmistress. At right. Mm-hmm. I think they're just so right. charming. It's such a charming yeah. Mario miss uh, misspeak kind of. <laughs> so we have an email. We have a listener email. Oh, oh we're just oh, we're just awash in in listener feedback this week. It's really oh, we have listeners. We have oh, listeners. Yeah. It's like miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. So we got I got uh, quite a, a lengthy email from uh, listener Tim, who s- uh, sent it to my um, submission form, like my contact form on my portfolio site, because apparently it's just coming to my attention that we don't really have a way to get in touch with us. So, uh, so I'll tell you what, um, give them Norma's personal email. What? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll do that. (laughs) Um, by, uh, by next week or by next episode, I'll make sure that we have uh, an email account set up that you can get in touch with us. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to, to read back. I know that I I forwarded this along to everyone, but I just wanted to kind of cover some, some specific things on on the episode here, yeah. Right, and and I think I responded to you sending it to me by saying that it was so amazing, and I wanted to read the whole thing, but as I got going, I decided that there might be spoilers. Yeah, Tim it's funny, I, I was, I, I just read through it again before we recorded today, and I don't, uh-huh. I don't know that there are any specific spoilers, but I, I yeah, understand I your little, impulse. Oh, so maybe allusions um, to spoilers instead of actual yeah, spoilers, yeah. so... So, so I want I want to read uh, just a little bit from his email and then touch on a couple things that he mentions here. So uh-huh. uh, he says, uh, don't know how else to contact you all, but I've been truly enjoying the podcast since it began and was honestly quite surprised to hear there were so few listeners. So just wanted to chime in and let you know that someone's out there. Someone is. That's so Yay. great. Uh, Yay. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you're back and recently posted new episodes since I feared you'd either given up or stopped for some reason. Uh, that's that's my fault for, for not keeping on top of the editing. Uh, I'm trying to do better. We'll see how it goes. I think it's actually the perfect discussion format, a small group including some who've read it before since everyone's bringing a different experience, background knowledge, and perspective to the conversation. 
I've heard many things discussed that I'd never even considered before, so good job. A couple things that he mentioned specifically, he says, Nuck is just a shorthand form of Canuck that's used to indicate someone is Canadian, and though it could be used pejoratively the same way American could be, it's certainly not an inherent slur. The uh, Vancouver Canucks even use it for their nickname. That's true. Um, I, yeah, I, I get that. I think in the context of American characters saying it in this book, uh, sounds sounds pretty slurry to me. It does sound slurry in the it book. It does, to me. yeah. I don't think it gets used that way in our world today very much, just because there's not a lot of cultural utility for Americans to have a slur word about Canadians. Yeah. So he mentions the inspiration for Johnny Gentle uh, in for David Foster Wallace was most likely Ronald Reagan. Uh, mm-hmm. Just an, ex- an exaggeration of washed-up actor Ronald Reagan's reasons for winning political office, personality rather than experience or competence. For sure. Um, mm-hmm. But benign. Yeah. Let us let us make a point that there's someone else who ended up in the White House. Well, with the oh same no! Thing, let's, but one is we, benign. We do not wait. No, no, okay. wait. We cannot okay. open this can of worms. Okay. Ronald Reagan no. is just as bad as Donald Trump. <laughs> Worse uh, in many no. ways. Well, he was, but also, but but more benign and civilized. Okay, can we? Can we say that in a, in a yes? He, he he in a very benign and civilized fashion ignored a pandemic right, uh, right. that killed many many people. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and yes. and found ways to, to make it very funny right. for himself and his cabinet. Yeah. Um, Wait, Ronald Reagan did? Yeah, the AIDS epidemic. Oh, mm-hmm. holy yeah. shit! Yeah. Yep. Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> yep. Okay. Cool. <clears throat> um. Uh, so Tim also mentioned something that I found really intriguing that I, I didn't, I wasn't able to chase down I- exact references to this, but he mentions that when she was first campaigning for public office, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez occasionally quoted Infinite Jest. Um, and, and I found that she made a list of like desert island books. It turns out she's a big fan of David Foster Wallace. The late authors consider The Lobster and other essays and Infinite Jest both made oh. the list. So really? AOC is wow. an Infinite Jest fan. Wow. Okay. AOC, wow. listen to our podcast. Yes. Yeah, please. Instead of doing important things, listen to our, our long plotting podcast about a book that you like. So here's something that I want to read out because I think that I disagree with it. But, but I do think it's an interesting point, and I want to discuss this a little bit. So okay. Tim writes... Uh, They certainly seem very real because of how well they were written, but try not to forget that the novel's characters aren't actually complex, real human beings. They're simply fictional entities that Wallace created to serve a specific purpose in his story. In fact, each and every word is serving some purpose. The best way to think of it isn't why is a given character doing something, but what does it mean that they are? Again, they're not real people. Um, and he uses the example of Marat and Steepley's philosophical discourse high up on a mountaintop being largely a metaphor for men in high places, casting a looming fateful shadow over peons far below. I do like that image, and I like thinking about it. Um, though I think that it's more fun to imagine characters as multifaceted <laughs> and pretend that they're real people. But that's I mean, that's, my that's what... Uh, that's kind of how I come down on it too like the idea that fiction contains thematic content is not unique to David Foster Wallace or Infinite Jest that's just a thing that fiction does I think that the way that I am most excited by fiction is when I can picture it as a 
just as a depiction of actual events and actual people. Um, when right. I was, no, you know, no fiction has is actually real people. Right. No fiction is ever actual real people. And yet I think that my only way into this book is through my uh, learning about and understanding about and wondering about the characters. I mean, mm-hmm. I have to pretend that they're real or else I'd be totally lost in this mm-hmm. book. Like who they are and how they act and what they say helps me frame what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I get that these characters feel very broad and they kind of feel like archetypes in a way mm-hmm. uh, or, or like almost almost mythical, uh, particularly right. somebody like James O. feels like a very mythic right. personage. And Avril, uh, kind of. Yeah, and Avril yeah. too. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily preclude being able to read this as just a work of character fiction. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that in some ways, like, the reason that I like this book, uh, as I do, is because it can be read in that way. I think if this were just, if these characters were just empty vessels for things that they signify, uh, I wouldn't have any interest in picking it up and reading it a second time. Right. I I think that's what sucks me in, too, is my, my feelings about the characters, my Either I like them or I really despise them or I, you know, I find them curious and totally impossible to understand. But it's what makes me read the next chunk because I want to I want to see and picture what's happening with all these people, mm-hmm. even though yeah. you know, I know it's fiction and they're not real people. I do get that. Wait, they're not. <laughs> And yeah. I just, I just like thinking of them as real people. <laughs> I just yeah, like thinking too. of them that way. Yeah. yeah. So that's just my bias, I guess. I just like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so Tim did have one other thing that he brought up, which is he was commenting on the novel's use of single quotation marks, which is something that we discussed pretty early. Oh my on God! Yeah. Oh podcast. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he says a thing that I swear we mentioned, although I've been too lazy to go back and re-listen to the episode to, to know <laughs> uh-huh. for sure. Um, but that the way single quotation marks are used in English writing is to indicate a quote within a quote. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. He mentions a parallel usage in a story from Girl with Curious Hair, which is a a David Foster Wallace book or collection of short stories that I haven't read. Hmm. Um, That is an excellent title. Yeah, and so this is where it starts to feel like maybe he's alluding to things that could be spoilers, so I don't want to talk about it too much. I also have, have to say, I don't know if I remember ever figuring this out adequately for myself. I think that probably after I read Infinite Jest, I read some analysis that, that told me that this is what was going on. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not sure if I ever really believed what I read. Uh-huh. So, so we'll, we'll see so if I... So this is something to I, revisit down the road? And Yeah, I think so. Can we just say the, the thing? Sure. Okay. The only thing that I'm going to say is that if all the quotation marks in Infinite Jest are single quotation marks, then where are the double quotation marks? Yeah, I know. I just turned back to the beginning of the book, to the first sentence, and there's no double quotation mark there. Mm -hmm. So I would posit, and I could be crazy, but I think the double quotation marks are the front and the back cover. Could be. I, yeah. I would believe that. Yeah. 
so that that kind of more or less covers the, there's more in Tim's email and, and thank uh-huh. you so much for sending this in this was a, a delight to read and it was. Uh, and I hope that our podcast release schedule stabilizes enough that you feel edified in listening to us and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah thanks thanks so much Tim <laughs> does anyone have anything they would like to announce or plug you can still go to my website and read a thing that I wrote seven years ago. <laughs> Good. At briannacrats.com. Uh, if you want to follow me and my paintings, you can do so on Instagram at cardboardvv. My website is agingrick.com, and I'm also on Instagram at coffeestopfix. And I know that you won't hear this before Thanksgiving, but it is before Thanksgiving here in in our current time. And so I hope everybody stayed safe and found ways to do pandemic holiday mm-hmm. celebrations. Be creative, mm-hmm. people. Uh, next time we'll be talking about pages 596 to 620. Our music this week was by Andy Iona, and our upcoming end music here is by Jonathan Rigby. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you're not crazy, then speaking to someone who isn't there is termed apostrophe and is valid art. probably are turkeys in the great concavity oh yeah oh, really enormous yeah. ones so I'm that's sure. fun to think about some of these mm-hmm. in gigantic format tearing around the countryside yeah <laughs> dinosaurs i mean they're already just tiny dinosaurs they yeah, just they turn are. back into dinosaurs yeah yeah mm-hmm. yep perfect okay.